106 on what is another delightful day. My goodness, the summer of 2022. It is dry. Just heard the forecast. This uh, ideal weather. You know what would be great? Would be right now. It's 106 on this Tuesday, July 12th. And good afternoon. You're listening to the John DePietro Show. If right now, think of this. You could head over to the Lodge Pub and Eatery, 40 Breakneck Hill Road in Lincoln. I was there Friday afternoon. And I had some delicious clam cakes and chowder outside on their deck, full deck. They've done a beautiful job with it. They also obviously have a, a, a unique large dining area, whether it's the dining room or the, the pub and lounge. Folks, the Lodge Pub and Eatery, 40 Breakneck Hill Road in Lincoln. You're going to love it. All right, I want to get you up to speed on some of the news of the day. Um, first of all, the um, that woman from... now I. The Stolen Valor case, it's my understanding that she lived in North Kingstown. I don't know why. Channel 10 is saying she lives in EG. I This whole time along, she was, what, what am I missing with the story? She was living in, I can't listen anymore of that Tara Mac thing. But um, I'm, I'm almost positive she was living in NK, in North Kingstown. So let's see what. Channel 12 has Sarah Cavanaugh. Well, now it's saying of East Greenwich. Well, maybe she moved. All right. It is possible. When I think when a lot of this was being done, I believe that she. All right. So I think when a lot of this was happening, she was initially living in North Kingstown. Uh, but this is um, atrocious. And she's going to plead guilty to the stolen valor case. Now, Channel 12, I think, has a piece on this. Former VFW commander, suspended medical center employee, admit she falsified military records. She used them to get benefits. She is um, a complete disgrace, but they have her nailed uh, dead to rights. Let me pay. This is the Channel 12 piece on woman it. faces federal charges tied to alleged stolen valor. 31-year-old Sarah Cavanaugh has now signed a plea agreement admitting to falsifying her military service to bilk nonprofit groups out of thousands of dollars. The office of U.S. Attorney Zachary Cunha telling 12 News that Cavanaugh will be pleading guilty to charges that include fraud, forgery, and aggravated identity theft. Wow. No word yet on how soon she could face federal sentencing. Huh. Wow. Holy cow. I mean, think of that. But, you know, it, it, I, I think when they have some of these people in these positions, they need to vet them more. That, that should be part of the process to avoid this because it does a lot of damage. It's embarrassing. It does a lot of damage. And on top of that, um, Every time, you know, they're trying to raise money for like a veterans organization, they have to they have to deal with some of this stuff. So I don't know why. I think that should just be whoever's going to be in the position has to be fully vetted, because if they had fully vetted her. Then this wouldn't have happened. Then this wouldn't have happened. So now I know the. um January 6th hearings are taking place. So I want to dip into a little bit of this. I think it's important. Let's hear a little bit of uh, this is Liz Cheney speaking right now. Nor can any argument of any kind excuse President Trump's behavior during the violent attack on January 6th. 
As you watch our hearing today, I would urge you to keep your eye on two specific points. First, you will see evidence that Trump's legal team, led by Rudy Giuliani, knew that they lacked actual evidence of widespread fraud sufficient to prove that the election was actually stolen. They knew it, but they went ahead with January 6th anyway. And second, consider how millions of Americans were persuaded to believe what Donald Trump's closest advisors in his administration did not. These Americans did not have access to the truth like Donald Trump did. They put their faith and their trust in Donald Trump. They wanted to believe in him. They wanted to fight for their country, and he deceived them. For millions of Americans, that may be painful to accept, but it is true. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Without objection, the chair recognizes the gentlewoman from Florida, Ms. Murphy, and a gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Raskin, for opening statements. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that then-President Donald Trump lost in a free and fair election. And yet, President Trump insisted that his loss was due to fraud in the election process, rather than to the democratic will of the voters. The president continued to make this claim despite being told again and again by the courts, by the Justice Department, by his campaign officials, and by some of his closest advisors that the evidence did not support this assertion. This was the big lie, and millions of Americans were deceived by it. Too many of our fellow citizens still believe it to this day. It's corrosive to our country and damaging to our democracy. As our committee has shown in prior hearings, following the election, President Trump relentlessly pursued multiple interlocking lines of effort, all with a single goal, to remain in power despite having lost. The lines of effort were aimed at his loyal Vice President Mike Pence, at state election and elected officials, and at the U.S. Department of Justice. The President pressured the Vice President to obstruct the process to certify the election result, he demanded that state officials find him enough votes to overturn the election outcome in that state, and he pressed the Department of Justice to find widespread evidence of fraud. When justice officials told the president that such evidence did not exist, the president urged them to simply declare that the election was corrupt. On December 14th, the Electoral College met to officially confirm that Joe Biden would be the next president. The evidence shows that once this occurred, President Trump and those who were willing to aid and abet him turned their attention to the joint session of Congress scheduled for January 6th, at which the vice president would preside. In their warped view, this ceremonial event was the next, and perhaps the last, inflection point that could be used to reverse the outcome of the election before Mr. Biden's inauguration. As President Trump put it, the vice president and enough members of Congress simply needed to summon the courage to act. To help them find that courage, the president called for backup. Early in the morning of December 19th, the president sent out a tweet urging his followers to travel to Washington, D.C. for January 6th. Be there. We'll be wild, the president wrote. As my colleague, Mr. Raskin, will describe in detail, this tweet served as a call to action and in some cases as a call to arms for many of President Trump's most loyal supporters. It's clear the president intended the assembled crowd on the January 6th to serve his goal, 
And as you've already seen, and as you will see again today, some of those who were coming had specific plans. The president's goal was to stay in power for a second term despite losing the election. The assembled crowd was one of the tools to achieve that goal. And in today's hearing, we will focus on events that took place in the final weeks leading up to January 6th, starting in mid-December. And we'll add color and context to evidence you've already heard about, and we'll also provide additional new evidence. For example, you'll hear about meetings in which the president entertained extreme measures designed to help him stay in power, like the seizure of voting machines. We will show some of the coordination that occurred between the White House and members of Congress as it relates to January 6th. And some of these members of Congress would later seek pardons. We will also examine some of the planning for the January 6th protests, placing special emphasis on one rally planner's concerns about the potential violence. And we will describe some of the president's key actions on the evening of January 5th and the morning of January 6th, including how the president edited and ad-libbed his speech that morning at the Ellipse, directed the crowd to march to the Capitol, and spoke off script in a way that further inflamed an already angry crowd. I yield to the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Raskin. Thank you, Ms. Murphy, Mr. Chairman, Madam Vice Chair. Four days after the electors met across the country and made Joe Biden the president-elect, Donald Trump was still trying to find a way to hang on to the presidency. Just paid him a surprise visit in the White House that would quickly become the stuff of legend. The meeting has been called unhinged, not normal, and the craziest meeting of the Trump presidency. The outside lawyers who had been involved in dozens of failed lawsuits had lots of theories supporting the big lie, but no evidence to support it. As we will see, however, they brought to the White House a draft executive order that they had prepared for President Trump to further his ends. Specifically, they proposed the immediate mass seizure of state election machines by the U.S. military. The meeting ended after midnight with apparent rejection of that idea. In the wee hours of December 19th, dissatisfied with his options, Donald Trump decided to call for a large and wild crowd on Wednesday, January 6th, the day when Congress would meet to certify the electoral votes. Never before in American history had a president called for a crowd to come contest the counting of electoral votes by Congress or engaged in any effort designed to influence, delay, or obstruct the joint session of Congress in doing its work required by our Constitution and the Electoral Count Act. As we'll see, Donald Trump's 1.42 a.m. tweet electrified and galvanized his supporters, especially the dangerous extremists and the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and other racist and white nationalist groups spoiling for a fight against the government. Three rings of interwoven attack were now operating towards January 6th. On the inside ring, Trump continued trying to work to overturn the election by getting Mike Pence to abandon his oath of office as vice president and assert the unilateral power to reject electoral votes. This would have been a fundamental and unprecedented breach of the Constitution that would promise Trump multiple ways of staying in office. Meanwhile, in the middle ring, members of domestic violent extremist groups created an alliance, both online and in person, to coordinate a massive effort to storm, invade, and occupy the Capitol. By placing a target on the joint session of Congress, Trump had mobilized these groups around a common goal, 
emboldening them, strengthening their working relationships, and helping build their numbers. Finally, in the outer ring, on January 6th, there assembled a large and angry crowd, the political force that Trump considered both the touchstone and the measure of his political power. Here were thousands of enraged Trump followers, thoroughly convinced by the big lie, who traveled from across the country to join Trump's wild rally to stop the steal. With the proper incitement by political leaders and the proper instigation from the extremists, many members of this crowd could be led to storm the Capitol, confront the vice president in Congress, and try to overturn the 2020 election results. All of these efforts would converge and explode on January the 6th. Mr. Chairman, as you know better than any other member of this committee from the wrenching struggle for voting rights in your beloved Mississippi, the problem of politicians whipping up mob violence to destroy fair elections is the oldest domestic enemy of constitutional democracy in America. Abraham Lincoln knew it too. In 1837, a racist mob in Alton, Illinois, broke into the offices of an abolitionist newspaper and killed its editor, Elijah Lovejoy. Lincoln wrote a speech in which he said that no transatlantic military giant could ever crush us as a nation, even with all of the fortunes in the world. But if downfall ever comes to America, he said, we ourselves would be its author and finisher. If racist mobs are encouraged by politicians to rampage and terrorize, Lincoln said, they will violate the rights of other citizens and quickly destroy the bonds of social trust necessary for democracy to work. Mobs and demagogues will put us on a path to political tyranny, Lincoln said. As we'll see today, this very old problem has returned with new ferocity today as a president who lost an election deployed a mob which included dangerous extremists to attack the constitutional system of election and the peaceful transfer of power. And as we'll see, the creation of the internet and social media has given today's tyrants tools of propaganda and disinformation that yesterday's despots could only have dreamed of. I yield back to the gentle lady from Florida, Ms. Murphy. Article 2 of the United States Constitution establishes the Electoral College. Each state's laws provide that electors are to be chosen by a popular vote. And on December 14, 2020, electors met in all 50 states and the District of Columbia to cast their votes. Joseph Biden won by a margin of 306 to 232. The election was over. Mr. Biden was the president-elect. Before the Electoral College met, Donald Trump and his allies filed dozens of legal challenges to the election, but they lost over and over again, including in front of multiple judges President Trump had nominated to the bench. In many of these cases, the judges were highly critical of the arguments put forward, explaining that no genuine evidence of widespread fraud had been presented. For example, a federal judge in Pennsylvania said, this court has been presented with strained legal arguments without merit and speculative accusations unsupported by evidence. In the United States of America, this cannot justify the disenfranchisement of a single voter, let alone all the voters of its sixth most populated state. On December 15th, after the Electoral College certified the outcome, 
the Republican majority leader in the Senate acknowledge Mr. Biden's victory. Yesterday, electors met in all 50 states. So as of this morning, our country has officially a president-elect and a vice president-elect. Many millions of us had hoped the presidential election would yield a different result. But our system of government has processes to determine who will be sworn in on January the 20th. The Electoral College has spoken. So today I want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden. Even members of President Trump's cabinet and his White House staff understood the significance of his losses in the courts and the absence of evidence of fraud. They also respected the constitutional certification by the Electoral College. Many of them told President Trump that it was time to concede the election to Mr. Biden. For example, then Secretary of Labor Gene Scalia, an accomplished lawyer and the son of late Justice Scalia, called President Trump in mid-December and advised him to concede and accept the rulings of the courts. And so I had to put a call to the president. I might have called on the 13th. We spoke, I believe, on the 14th, in which um, I conveyed to him that I uh, thought that it was time for him to acknowledge that uh, President Biden had uh, prevailed in the election. But I communicated to the president that uh, when that legal process is exhausted and when the electors are, have voted, that that's the point at which that outcome needs to be expected. I told him that I did believe, yes, that once the, those legal processes were run, uh, if fraud had not been established, that had affected the outcome of the election, then unfortunately I believe that what had to be done was concede the outcome. As you've seen in prior hearings, President Trump's Justice Department, his White House staff, and his campaign officials were repeatedly telling him that there was no evidence of fraud sufficient to change the outcome of the election. And last week, we conducted an eight-hour interview with President Trump's White House counsel, Pat Cipollone. You'll see a number of excerpts of that interview today and even more in our next hearing. Mr. Cipollone told us that he agreed with the testimony that there was no evidence of fraud sufficient to overturn the election. I want to start by asking if you agree, Mr. Cipollone, with the conclusions of Matt Morgan, Bill Barr, all of the individuals who evaluate those claims that there is no evidence of election fraud sufficient to undermine the outcome in particular state. Yes, I agree with that. And Mr. Cipollone also specifically testified that he believed that Donald Trump should have conceded the election. Did you believe and Mr. Cipollone that the president should concede once you made the determination based on the investigations that you credited DOJ did? Did you in your mind form the belief that the president should concede the election loss uh, at a certain point after the election? Well, again, uh, I was the White House counsel. Some of those decisions are political, so to the extent that but, but if your question is that I believe he should concede the election at a point in time, yes, I did. I, I believe um, Leader McConnell went onto the floor of the Senate, I believe, in December and basically said, you know, the process is done. No, that, that would be in line with my thinking on these things. As Attorney General Bill Barr testified, December 14th should have been the end of the matter. 
September 14th was the day that the state certified their votes and sent them to Congress. And in my view, that was the end of the matter. Uh, I didn't see, uh, you know, I, I thought that uh, this would lead inexorably to a new administration. Mr. Cipollone also testified that the president's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, said he shared this view. As early as that November 23rd meeting, we understand that there was discussion about the president possibly conceding the election. And, and specifically, uh, we understand that, that Mark Meadows assured both you and Attorney General Barr that the president would eventually agree to a graceful exit. Do you remember Mr. Meadows making any such representation? Are you saying as part of that meeting or separately? Again, without, without getting into that meeting, I would say that that is a, that is a statement and a sentiment that I heard from Mark Meadows. I see. And, and again, do you know if it was on November 23rd or some point? Again, I, I, it was probably, you know, around that time, and it was probably subsequent to that time. It wasn't a long time. Mr. Meadows has refused to testify, and the committee is in litigation with him. But many other White House officials shared the view that once the litigation ended and the Electoral College met, the election was over. And here's President Trump's former press secretary. I wanted to clarify, uh, Ms. McEnany, so back to my previous question, it was your view then, or was it your view, that the efforts to overturn the election should have stopped once litigation was complete? In my view, um, upon the conclusion of litigation uh, was when I, I began to plan for life after the administration. And this is what Ivanka Trump told us. December 14th was the day on which the Electoral College met when these electors around the country met and cast the electoral votes consistent with the, the, the popular vote in each state. And, and it was obviously a, a public proceeding or, or a series of proceedings that President Biden had obtained the requisite number of electors. Was that an important day for you? Did that affect sort of your, your planning or your realization as to whether or not there was going to be an end of, of this administration? I think so. I think it was my, my sentiment probably prior as well. Judd Deere was a White House deputy press secretary. This was his testimony about what he told President Trump. I told him that my personal viewpoint was that the Electoral College had met, uh, which is the uh, <clears throat> system that our uh, country is, is set under to elect a president and vice president. And I believed at that point that the um, means for him to pursue uh, litigation um, uh, was probably closed. And you recall what his response, if any, was? He disagreed. We've also seen this testimony from Attorney General Barr reflecting a view of the White House staff in late November 2020. And then at that point, I left. And as I walked out of the Oval Office, Jared was there with Dan Scavino, who ran his, ran the president's um, social media, and who I thought was a reasonable guy and believe is a reasonable guy. And I said, uh, "How long is how long is he going to 
carry on with this uh, stolen election stuff. Where is this going to go? And by that time, uh, Meadows had caught up with me and uh, leaving the office and caught up to me and, and said uh, that uh, uh, he said, look, I, I, I think uh, that he's becoming more realistic and knows that there's a limit to how far he can take this. And then Jared said, you know, yeah, we're working on this. We're working on it. Likewise, in this testimony, Cassidy Hutchinson and eight Folks, again, good afternoon. You're listening to the John DePetro Show. This is live coverage of the January 6th uh, hearing. Republican congressman. Of course, underlying all of this is the fundamental principle that the President of the United States cannot simply disregard the rulings of state and federal courts, which are empowered to address specific election-related claims. The President cannot simply pretend that the courts have not ruled. By that time, uh, the President or his associates had brought, had lost 60 out of 61 cases uh, uh, that they had brought to challenge uh, different aspects of uh, the election in, in a number of states. They lost 60 out of 61 of those cases. Um, so by the time we get to January 3rd, that, that's, that's been clear. Um, I assume, Pat, that you would agree the president is, is uh, obligated to abide by the rulings of the courts. Of course. And, and I assume you also... Everybody, everybody is obligated to buy by rules, of course. And, and I assume you also would agree the president has a particular obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. That is one of the president's obligations, correct. Yet President Trump disregarded these court rulings and the counsel from his closest advisors and continued his efforts to cling to power. In our prior hearings, you have heard considerable testimony about President Trump's attempts to corruptly pressure Vice President Pence to refuse to count electoral votes, to corrupt the Department of Justice, to pressure state officials and state legislatures, and to create and submit a series of fake electoral slates. Now, we will show you what other actions President Trump was taking between December 14th, 2020 and January 6th. I yield to the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Raskin. Thank you, Ms. Murphy. Throughout our hearings, you've heard how President Trump made baseless claims that voting machines were being manipulated by foreign powers in the 2020 election. You've also heard Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, describe such claims as complete nonsense, which he told the president. Let's review that testimony. I saw absolutely zero basis for the allegations but they were made in such a sensational way that they obviously were influencing a lot of people, uh, members of the public, that there was this systemic corruption in the system and that their votes didn't count and that these machines controlled by somebody else were actually determining it, which was complete nonsense. And it was being laid out there. And I told them that it was, that it was uh, crazy stuff and they were wasting their time on that. And uh, it was doing a great, grave disservice to the country. 
We've learned that President Trump's White House counsel agreed with the Department of Justice about this. Attorney General Barr made a public, made a public announcement on December 1st, less than a month, that he had seen notes and frauds fishing them. Barr said that by December 1st, you could... It's fair to say that I agree with Attorney General Barr, that Attorney General Barr's conclusion on December 1st, um, yes, I did, and I supported that conclusion. However, the strong rejection of the Attorney General and the White House counsel of these claims did not stop the President from trying to press them in public. But that's not all he did. Indeed, as you'll see in this clip, the President asked Attorney General Bill Barr to have the Department of Justice seize voting machines in the states. My recollection is the president said something like, uh, well, we could get to the bottom. You know, some people say we could get to the bottom of this if, if the department sees the machines. It was a typical way of raising a point. And I said, absolutely not. There's no probable cause and we're not going to seize any machines. And that was that. Yeah. But this wasn't the end of the matter. On the evening of December 18th, 2020, Sidney Powell, General Michael Flynn, and others entered the White House for an unplanned meeting with the president, the meeting that would last multiple hours and become hot-blooded and contentious. The executive order behind me on the screen was drafted on December the 16th, just two days after the Electoral College vote, by several of the president's outside advisors over a luncheon at the Trump International Hotel. As you can see here, this proposed order directs the Secretary of Defense to seize voting machines, quote, effective immediately. But it goes even further than that. Under the order, President Trump would appoint a special counsel with the power to seize machines and then charge people with crimes with all resources necessary to carry out her duties. The specific plan was to name Sidney Powell huh. as special counsel, the Trump lawyer who had spent the post-election period making outlandish claims about Venezuelan and Chinese interference in the election, among others. Here's what White House counsel Pat Cipollone had to say about Sidney Powell's qualifications to take Listen on to this, folks. such he expansive stand authority. Her. She's nuts. I don't think Sidney Powell would say that. I thought it was a good idea to appoint her special counsel. I was vehemently opposed. I didn't think she should have been appointed to anything. Sidney Powell told the president that these steps were justified because of her evidence of foreign interference in the 2020 election. However, as we've seen, Trump's allies had no such evidence and, of course, no legal authority for the federal government to seize state voting machines. Here's Mr. Cipollone again denouncing Sidney Powell's terrible idea. There was a real question in my mind and a real concern, you know, particularly after the Attorney General had reached the conclusion that there wasn't sufficient election fraud to change the outcome of the election. When other people kept suggesting that there was, the answer is, what is it? Government sees voting machines. Well, it's a terrible idea for the country. 
That's not how we do things in the United States. Uh, there's no legal authority to do that. And there is a way to contest elections, you know, that, that happens all the time. But the idea that the federal government could come in and seize election machines, now that, that's, I don't, I don't understand why we even have to tell you why that's a bad idea. It's a terrible idea. For all of its absurdity, the December 18th meeting was critically important because President Trump got to watch up close for several hours as his White House counsel and other White House lawyers destroyed the baseless factual claims and ridiculous legal arguments being offered by Sidney Powell, Mike Flynn, and others. President Trump now knew all these claims were nonsense not just from his able White House lawyers, but also from his own Department of Justice officials and indeed his own campaign officials. As White House counsel Pat Cipollone told us. With respect to the whole election fraud issue, it to me is sort of, if you're gonna make those kind of claims, and people were open to them early on because people were making all sorts of claims. And the real question is, show the evidence, okay? It wasn't just the Justice Department, the Trump campaign, and the Trump White House lawyers who knew it. Even Rudy Giuliani's own legal team admitted that they did not have any real evidence of fraud sufficient to change the election result. Here's an email from Rudy Giuliani's lead investigator, Bernie Carrick, on December 28, 2020, to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Mr. Carrick did not mince any words. We can do all the investigations we want later, but if the president plans on winning, it's the legislators that have to be moved, and this will do just that. Mr. Kirik wanted the president to win. What he didn't say in this email was what he would later tell the select committee in a letter that his lawyer wrote to us in November. The letter said, quote, It was impossible for Mr. Kirik and his team to determine conclusively whether there was widespread fraud or whether that widespread fraud would have altered the outcome of the election. In other words, even Rudy Giuliani's own legal team knew before January 6th that they hadn't collected enough actual evidence to support any of their stolen election claims. Here's what Trump campaign senior advisor Jason Miller told the committee about some of the so-called evidence of fraud that the campaign had seen from the Giuliani team. So do you know what the examples of fraud, numbers, names, and supporting evidence was that you sent to Mo Brooks's office? And when I say you, I mean you or the campaign. There's some very, very general uh, documents as far as um, uh, as far as say for example, here are the handful of dead people in several different states. Um, here are uh, explanations on a couple of the legal challenges as far as the saying that the, uh, the rules were changed in an unconstitutional manner. Uh, but it was to say that it was thin uh, is, is probably an understatement. Here's how President Trump's deputy campaign manager described the evidence of fraud that the campaign had seen. You never came to uh, learn or understand that Mayor Giuliani had uh, had produced evidence of election fraud. Is that fair? That's fair. 
And here's testimony that we received from the Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives, Rusty Bowers, about an exchange that he had with Rudy Giuliani after the election. At some point, did uh, one of them uh, make a comment that uh, they didn't have evidence, but they had a lot of theories? That was Mr. Giuliani. Chief of Staff Mark Meadows told people that he thought Trump should concede around the time the Electoral College certified the result. But nonetheless, he later worked to try to facilitate President Trump's wishes. Here's what Cassidy Hutchinson told us. During this period, he, um, I perceived his goal with all of this to keep Trump in office. Um, you know, he had very seriously and deeply considered the allegations of voter fraud. But when he began acknowledging that maybe there wasn't enough voter fraud to overturn the election, you know, I, I witnessed him start to explore potential constitutional loopholes more extensively, which are then connected as John Easton's theories. The startling conclusion is this. Even an agreed-upon complete lack of evidence could not stop President Trump, Mark Meadows, and their allies from trying to overturn the results of a free and fair election. So let's return to that meeting at the White House on the evening of December 18. That night, a group showed up at the White House, including Sidney Powell, retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, and former Overstock.com CEO Patrick Byrne. After gaining access to the building from a junior White House staffer, the group made their way to the Oval Office. They were able to speak with the president by himself for some time until White House officials learned of the meeting. What ensued was a heated and profane clash between this group and President Trump's White House advisors who traded personal insults, accusations of disloyalty to the president, and even challenges to physically fight. The meeting would last over six hours hours beginning here in the Oval Office, moving around the West Wing, and many hours later ending up in the president's private residence. The select committee has spoken with six of the participants, as well as staffers who could hear the screaming from outside the Oval Office. What took place next is best told in their own words, as you will see from this video. Did you believe that it was going to work, that you were going to be able to get to see the president uh, without an appointment? I had no idea. Uh, in fact, you did get to see the president without an appointment. We did. How much time did you have alone with the president? And I say alone, you had other people with you, but right from his aides before the crowd came running? Uh, probably no more than 10 or 15 minutes. That's Sid Powell. Was in that. In I bet that's the baloney set a new land speed record. I got a call either from Molly. So that was the first point that I had recognized. Okay, there was nobody in there from the White House. Mark's gone. What's going on right now? I opened the door and I walked in. I saw General Flynn. I saw Sidney Powell sitting there. I was not happy to see the people in the Oval Office. Well, again, I, I don't think they were providing. Well, first of all, 
an overstock person. I, 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 I didn't think this guy was. Actually, the first thing I did, I walked in, I looked at him, and I said, who are you? And he told me. I don't think, I don't think any of these people were providing the president with good advice. And so I, I, I didn't understand how they had gotten in. In the short period of time that you had with the president, did uh, uh, he seem receptive to the presentation that you were making? He was very interested in hearing particularly about the FISA finding and the terms of 13848 that apparently nobody else had bothered to inform him of. That's Sidney Powell. I was asking if like, you claim the Democrats were working with Hugo Chavez, Venezuelans, and whomever else. And at one point, uh, General Flynn took out a diagram that supposedly showed IP addresses all over the world and who was, who was communicating with whom via the machines and some comment about like Nest thermostats being hooked up to the internet. So it's been reported that during this meeting, Ms. Powell talked about this is General machines and made various election fraud claims that involve foreign countries such as Venezuela, totally Iran, and China. Is that accurate? The fifth. Was the meeting tense? The fifth. Oh, yeah. Uh, I this was is, on a uh, casual Derek meeting. Derek Lyons. Explain. I mean, at times there were people shouting at each other, huh. throwing insults at each other. Um, it wasn't just sort of people sitting around on the couch, like, chit-chatting. Do you recall whether he raised to Ms. Powell the fact that she and the campaign had lost all of the 60 cases that they had brought in litigation? Yes, he raised And what was the response? I Cipollonian, Hirschman, and uh, whoever the other guy was showed nothing but contempt and disdain uh, of the president. Yeah. The three of them were really sort of forcefully attacking me verbally. <laughs> um, Eric, Derek, and we were pushing back and we were asking one simple question as a, as a general matter. Where is the evidence? So, what response did you get when you asked Ms. Powell and her colleagues? We have some a variety of responses based on my current recollection, including, you know, can't believe you would say something. You know, things like this, like, what do you mean, where's the evidence? You should know. Yeah, things like that. Or, you know, a disregard, I would say, a general disregard for the importance of actually backing up what you say with facts. And, you know, then there was discussion of, well, you know, we don't have it now, but we'll have it or whatever. I mean, if, if it had been me sitting in his chair, I would have fired all of them that night well, and had him escorted out of the building. Sid Powell. I both challenged what she was saying. And she says, well, the judges are corrupt. And I was like, everyone, every single case that you've done in the country you guys lost, every one of them is corrupt, even the ones we appointed. And I'm being nice. I was much more harsh to her. So one of the other things that's been reported that was said during this meeting was that President Trump told White House lawyers, Mr. Hirschman and Mr. Cipollone, that they weren't offering him any solutions, but Ms. Powell and others were. 
So why not try uh, what Ms. Powell and others were proposing? Do you remember anything along those lines being said by President Trump? I do. That sounds right. I think that it got to the point where the screaming was completely, completely <laughs> out there. I mean, you got people walking, it was late at night, it had been a long day, and what they were proposing, I thought was nuts. I'm going I'm to categorically describe it as... This is Rudy. You guys are not tough enough. Or maybe, I put it another way, you're a bunch of pussies. Excuse the expression, but that, that's I. This is The word was used. Flynn screamed at me that I was a quitter and everything. Kept up standing up and turning around and screaming at me. Flynn. And at a certain point, I had it with him. So. Wow. I back. Either come over or sit your effing ass back down. The president <laughs> and the White House team. This is Giuliani. Upstairs to the residence. But to the um, uh, public part of the residence, you know, the big, the big baller where you can have meetings in the conference room. Oval. They call it the yellow oval? Yes, exactly. The yellow oval. I always called it the upper. Um, it's Giuliani. And I'm not exactly sure where the Sydney group went. I think maybe the Roosevelt room. And I stayed in the cabinet room, which is kind of cool. I really like that. All, my, all by myself. At the end of the day, we landed where we started the meeting, at least from a structural standpoint, which was Sidney Powell was fighting, Mike Flynn was fighting. They were looking for avenues that would enable, that would result in President Trump remaining President Trump for a second term. The meeting finally ended after midnight. Huh. Here are text messages sent by Cassidy Hutchinson during and after the meeting. As you can see, Ms. Hutchinson reported that the meeting in the West Wing was unhinged. The meeting finally broke up after midnight during the early morning of December 19. Cassidy Hutchinson captured the moment of Mark Meadows escorting Rudy Giuliani off the White House grounds to, quote, make sure he didn't wander back into the mansion. Certain accounts of this meeting indicate that President Trump actually granted Ms. Powell security clearance and appointed her to a somewhat ill-defined position of special counsel. He asked Pat Cipollone if he had the authority to name me special counsel, and he said yes. And then he asked him if he had the authority to give me whatever security clearance I needed. And Pat Cipollone said yes. And then the president said, okay, you know, I'm naming her that and I'm giving her security clearance. And then shortly before we left and it totally blew this up. This is uh, Sidney Powell. Uh, Cipollone and or Hirschman and whoever the other young man was said, you can name her whatever you want to name her and no one's going to pay any attention to it. How did he respond? How did the president respond to that? Uh, something like, you see what I deal with, I deal with this all the time. She's nuts. Over the ensuing days, no further steps were taken to appoint Sidney Powell, but there is some ambiguity about what the president actually said and did during the meeting. Here is how Pat Cipollone described it. I don't 
don't know what her understanding of whether she had been appointed, what she had been appointed to. Okay, in my view, she hadn't been appointed to anything, and ultimately wasn't appointed to anything because there had to be other steps taken. So that was my view when I left the meeting. But she may have a different view, and others may have a different view, and, and the president. Were any steps taken, including the president himself, telling her she'd been appointed? Again, I'm not going to get into what the president said in the meeting. Uh, you know, my recollection is you, you're not appointed. You, you're not appointed until, until steps are taken to get the paperwork done. Get, and when I left the meeting, okay, the, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is. I'm not going to get into what the president said uh, or what the city wanted. Mr. Sibling, um, when um, the, the matter continued to flare up over the next several days, was it your understanding that City Hall was still seeking an appointment or that she was asserting that she had been appointed by the president at the December 18th meeting? You know, now that you mentioned it, probably both. You know, in, in terms of like, I think she was, I think she may have been of the view that she had been appointed and was seeking to, you know, get, get that done and, um, and, and that she should be appointed. As you listen to these Folks, this is uh, live coverage the of the January 6th hearing on the John DePietro show. Was ultimately sanctioned by a federal court and sued by Dominion Voting Systems for defamation. In her own defense to that lawsuit, Sidney Powell argued that, quote, no reasonable person would conclude that the statements were truly statements of fact. Wow. Not long after Sidney Powell, General Flynn, and Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani left the White House in the early hours of the morning, President Trump turned away from both his outside advisors' most outlandish and unworkable schemes and his White House counsel's advice to swallow hard and accept the reality of his loss. Instead, Donald Trump issued a tweet that would galvanize his followers, unleash a political firestorm, and change the course of our history as a country. Trump's purpose was to mobilize a crowd. And how do you mobilize a crowd in 2020? With millions of followers on Twitter, President Trump knew exactly how to do it. At 1.42 a.m. on December 19, 2020, shortly after the last participants left the unhinged meeting, Trump sent out the tweet with his explosive invitation. Trump repeated his big lie and claimed it was, quote, statistically impossible to have lost the 2020 election before calling for a big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. We'll be wild. Trump supporters responded immediately. Women for America First, a pro-Trump organizing group, had previously applied for a rally permit for January 22nd and 23rd in Washington, D.C., several days after Joe Biden was to be inaugurated. But in the hours after the tweet, they moved their permit to January 6th, two weeks before. This rescheduling created the rally where Trump would eventually speak. The next day, Ali Alexander, leader of the Stop the Steal organization and a key mobilizer of Trump supporters, registered wild protest.com, named after Trump's tweet, 
While Protest.com provided comprehensive information about numerous newly organized protest events in Washington, it included event times, places, speakers, and details on transportation in Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, other key Trump supporters, including far-right media personalities, began promoting the wild protest on January 6th. It's Saturday, December 19th. Alex Jones. 2020. And one of the most historic events in American history has just taken place. President Trump, in the early morning hours today, tweeted that he wants the American people to march on Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021. And now Donald Trump is calling on his supporters to descend on Washington, D.C. January 6th. He is now calling on we the people to take action and show our numbers. We're going to only be saved by millions of Americans moving to Washington, occupying the entire area, if necessary, storming right into the Capitol. You know, there, we, we know the rules of engagement. If you have enough people, you can push down any kind of a fence or a wall. This could be Trump's last stand. And it's a time when he has specifically called on his supporters to arrive in D.C. That's something that may actually be the big push. Trump supporters need to say, this is it. It's now or never. You better understand something, son. You better understand something. Red wave, bitch. Red wave. This is going to be a red wedding going down January 6th. All right. On that day, Trump says, show up for a protest. These are, again, folks, uh, at 159... Sorry, I, again, we're running it. That's coming right out of the the, uh, the meeting, the hearing, excuse me, in, in Washington. It's John DePietro. Remember, this portion of the program brought to you by the Lodge Puppy Neatery, 40 Breakneck Hill Road in Lincoln, right off the 146. Stop in for a delicious meal. Listen, enjoy this Tuesday. We will be doing Facebook Live later. Uh, stay tuned. You're going to hear the 2 o'clock news, and then it'll be the, the John Dion program. Again, uh, go to the website, visit depetro.com. Enjoy this Tuesday.